Erin LeBauer. This is a long overdue interview. I am so excited to finally get you on the podcast. Hey, Alicia, thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm glad to finally be here. I've been wanting yeah. to be on your show for a long time. You probably didn't know it. So. Oh, well, I, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I've been thinking about this and how to, how to introduce you to viewers. Um, and you and I have been friends for a really long time through originally, I met you and Andra at the same time, actually, right. um, at a, when I was a part of a nonprofit and we were have a, having a quote unquote friend raising event. And it did, it did just that. We raised right. a lot of friends. Totally and, did. Yeah. It was like the, um, the upstairs theater space at Triad Stage. I think there's a name for that space mm -hmm. and I'm blanking on it. And we created all of these po pockets of conversations and you had Sophia right. with you. And she was like, what, a month old? I mean, yeah, she was like a month old and she was making humming noises when she slept and people were like, what do you have in there? And I was like, oh, my pet ferret. And they'd see a baby. You're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it was a baby, you know, because I was wearing her in like a, a sling, you know? Yeah. yeah. It was, it was the coolest thing. It was the only, it was the first baby to come to a face-to-face -face event at our very mm -hmm. first event. It was pretty awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if you can just tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do in this world. Yeah. I, I'm a lot of different things. Um, my name is Aaron LeBauer. I, let's say I grew up here in Greensboro, uh, moved away for about 10 years um, and decided to come back. I met my wife, Andra, and was, we were living in California. And I was like, well, you know what? Instead, of, we were kind of done with California. Instead of throwing a dart at the map, let's go try North Carolina. Um, I'm a, so we've been here for, I don't know, since 2004, 2005. Um, I'm a massage therapist. I'm a physical therapist. I own uh, physical therapy clinic, LeBauer Physical Therapy here in Greensboro. I'm also a business coach. I've helped thousands of physical therapists launch, grow, scale um, physical therapy practices that do not rely on insurance companies for reimbursement and for payments. Um, I'm also a former bicycle racer, uh, bike messenger. I've done, uh, I've, I've cleaned bathrooms. I've painted gyms. I've, you know, done plumb. I've done, I've been a dishwasher and a fry cook all the things, um, even assumed that people assumed I didn't know the alphabet just because I was a temporary employee. So I've done a lot. Um, but I think the primary thing that I'm doing these days is helping people live a fuller, healthier, stronger life without pain meds, injections, or surgery. And I do that through our clinic and through helping other people do it in their clinics too. I love that. I, I love so much about your story and, um, it, th everything that you just said is a reminder of why I love both you and your wife Andra so much is because, um, both of you have led these really eclectic lives with really interesting things. And both of you have just your people that I see who have unapologetically gone after your dreams. Thank you. And, you know, can you, how do you go from bike racer to massage therapist to physical therapy, business owner, and then coach? Can you talk a little bit about that journey? Yeah. It's a long I, journey, but yeah, it is. 
I'm also, I forgot, I'm also a, a yoga teacher too. Well, so. you are a yoga teacher, a good <laughs> yoga teacher. Thank you very much. And thanks to you and Andra, but Andra pushed me to do it and you came to my first class. So thank I you. did. Um, how'd I get there? Well, growing up, let's see, it kind of starts with my brother, David. Um, he, his, uh, one of his tutors um, was a bicycle racer, Svi Cohen. Svi was great. Um, and Svi would take David out on bike rides. And then David was working at the bike shop. And I was like, well, I can't let my brother be better at me than something. And I got to go, I want to go do this. So I went, worked at the bike shop. And I worked to buy myself a bike and we did rides together. And then in college started racing. Um, I'd raced before college, but I, I started racing, I would say seriously. So bicycle racing seriously is when you're doing 15 to 25 bike races a year minimum versus like triathlon or Ironman where you're doing like a handful. Right. Um, so I had a dream. I was like, well, I want to be a professional cyclist. That was my dream, but I didn't have that dream until after I was in college In college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a physician because that's what my dad and uncles and everyone else before me was. But I, that first day in organic chemistry, I got an A in chemistry the two semesters before and in organic chemistry, I'm like, this is going to take me four hours to do the first night's homework. And it was all review. And I was like, I'm not in it for this. This is not my, not my life. I'm here to have fun. Um, so I graduated and it was either, well, so I'd been racing bikes in college. Um, I'm trying to make the story short, but um, I graduated college and it was either go uh, race bikes in Europe or go somewhere safe that my parents would approve of. And so that was go to Israel and do a, a year-long volunteer uh, learning service learning project. And so I did that because at the time I wasn't really racing bikes and I wasn't a prodigy, but I got back from that year, moved out to California and I was like, I got to ride my bike. But I couldn't get a job that paid me enough to afford to pay 25 to 40 bucks per race plus hotels. Um, and so I ended up as a bike messenger. Uh, I was a bike messenger um, and I could ride my bike for work. It was great. It's the best feeling in the world. Um, but one day I had this epiphany. I was like, oh, if I become a massage therapist, I can see four people a day and I can spend the other 20 hours training, recovering and eating. <laughs> And, uh, so I went to massage therapy school and I did that. And I, I went to massage school and I'd train and I'd go to massage school in the morning and I'd train in the afternoon. Mm. The funny thing was Andre and I crossed paths there. We were in the same massage school. Um, we overlapped for about four or five months, but she was in Tuesday, Thursday evening, Saturday mornings. And I was there Monday through Friday mornings. <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah. So we were there at the same time. Yeah. And then okay. what we did, and so then, so I'm, 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 I'm able to race bikes and I can work as a massage therapist, um, making decent money enough to race bikes, but I was putting a lot on credit cards, but that was my dream. My dream wasn't to be a be Lance Armstrong. It was to push my body as hard as, and as far as I could go. Um, let's see. So I don't know, fast, there was a lot in there, uh, right. in the next 10 years. Um, but I got to this point. In, where I was the best person on my team and then the team turned pro, uh, but I wasn't invited to join the pro team, even though I was the best person on there. And there's a little bit of bicycle racing politics that go along with that, but a division three pro team has to have over half the riders under the age of 26. And I think I was 27 or 28 at the time, mm. or maybe I was 30, you know, I don't think I was quite 30. I think I was 30 and, you know, even though I was better than they brought in three other guys who had been pros for a couple of years. 
And, you know, that taught me a couple lessons. Uh, number one, um, it was like, you know, don't expect any, don't expect people to return favors <laughs> and, uh, that you kind of have to be self-sufficient. But at that point I had nothing left to race for, cause I had pushed myself as hard as I could go. And as far as I realized, and that would be in my best shot at turning pro, even though I never thought it'd be, uh, like a tour de France cyclist. Like there's no way, like I raced against those guys and they're a different type of machine. Um, but from there I'd been a massage therapist. And so now my, I, I would quit to spend more time with my wife and, and, uh, you know, she was like, you should go, you should go to massage, you know, physical therapy school. And she had already kind of, um, pushed me towards that, but it wasn't possible living in the Bay area. And at this time we were living on the coast of California in Morro Bay, not Morro Bay, uh, San Luis Obispo. So instead of throwing the dart at the map, we said, let's give a North Carolina a try. And we came here we both re-enrolled in school. We bought a, we bought a house, both re-enrolled in school and, um, started business and I, and things just kind of took off. And so at that point, like the dream of being a cyclist was over, mm. but my next dream, like it, it took a while to figure out what that was, but I knew I had a kind of a talent and an affinity for helping people with their bodies. And so PT school made sense. Um, in both cases, I've leveraged tons of debt to get there. Mm. Um, I think I was 50 something thousand dollars in debt from racing bikes. Like v I joke Visa MasterCard were my best sponsors. <laughs> and, uh, and then PT school, I think it was like, I was $86,000 in debt for PT school, wow. which is small compared to what, uh, kids are graduating with these days. Wow. Um, but I knew, you know, that, that I wanted to help people. Um, it took a while to get to where I'm at now to have treating patients. I thought, I'm going to go become a PT and people will now come to see me and I won't be the end of the line. Well, I'm still the end of the line. And there's still 20 years telling me, um, I've been told there's nothing wrong. I've been told it's all in my head. I've been told never to squat again, never to lift again, never to run again. Cause you're going to damage your body in some way. And that makes me want to bang my head against the wall. And mm. so what I, what I really want, I, like for my profession and for people is to know that getting a total body diagnostic from a physical therapist is exactly how to know what's wrong and how to fix it versus what most people think is they need an MRI or x-ray to know what's wrong. Um, and that only sends them down a path that costs more money. It's more invasive and may not even fix the problem. Um, so I don't know. I think that's a short, that's a short yeah. version of the question you answered. I love that. I, there's a piece of that story about the bike racing that maybe I've heard you tell before, but there's something that's sticking with me right now that you weren't invited back onto that team, mm -hmm. even though you're the best. And I think so often when things don't work out for us, we think that we did something wrong. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not that yeah. at all. Like that's not even part of the equation. Right. And that's what's sticking out to me about that story about bike racing. So how did you reconcile that? Because you're talking about it very rationally now. And I know that was a long time ago, but I'm yeah. sure there were a lot of feelings. Here's how, that. yeah, you kind of, here's how it went down. Yeah. So in bicycle racing, you start as a category five and the top amateur level is one. And then from one, you can be a pro. <clears throat> you don't have to actually qualify for pro. You just actually have to be put on a pro team. But so I was the best category three when I joined the team. Um, I spent time working as a temp, getting sponsors for the team. We landed a $5,000 sponsor one year, then a $10,000 sponsor and a $20,000 sponsor. And, you know, I was the best rider. I was also the manager of the team. 
Um, I would get my bike basically for free. I would get my, my clothes and my entry fees. It was great. I decided there's some other guys on the team that are more business-minded than me. They're not as good at racing. They want to kind of do more management. I kind of turned it over to them. Mm. And I said, okay, this year, what I'm going to do is I'm going to race to get good results, but also help my, bring my teammates along and help them upgrade to category one. So instead of me getting results that year and having them work for me, I was like, all right, I'm going to sacrifice myself to help you. Mm. And then I got four of these guys help four of these guys upgrade. And then the next year we turned pro and I went to the training camp in December, maybe even January, but I didn't get let know until about late December or January that I didn't have a spot on the pro team. I was only going to be on the amateur team. And when I should have, if they had told me in October, I could have found another team. Right. And then we're at these races and the guys on the pro team are wearing last year's Jersey. So they look like they're racing with me and they're keeping me from getting into breaks and being successful because everyone else in race thought we were on the same team. They're like, why are we going to work with both of you? And I'm like, he's not on my team. He's not racing with me, even though he's wearing the same Jersey. And I'd have to have these arguments out like in the race because I, I couldn't broadcast this to everyone. And even when we went traveling that spring, I, um, I asked this, Hey, can we coordinate our travel? And they kind of gave me the, the, the snub nose, even though I had raced with most of these guys the year before a guy from another team was like, yo, dude, you can stay with me. You know, and he fit, he put my bill for a hotel for like five nights in a row and we traveled together and he wasn't even on my team. So, you know, how do I reconcile that, that it, well, I knew, I know now it wasn't me, but the odd thing was the guy who was footing the bill was like, well, Aaron, when you upgrade to category one, we'll get you on the pro team. And I'm just like, how clueless are you? Like, yeah. he doesn't know. And it was totally crazy. And I just realized it was, there were one or two guys that were probably, you know, the, the guys who, who should have, who should have said something to me. Um, and they weren't being honest, but at the same time, I think looking back, like that's just the game, yeah. you know, you got to look out for yourself and I look out for other people. I, I do look out for myself. Like I will feed myself first in the morning and then right. take care of my kids. <laughs> but in general, like I look, because if I'm not taking care of, I'm going to be a bad dad, you know, I, you know, yeah. versus like Andra's inclination is to take care of them first and then herself. And like, so we kind of come from opposite ends on that, but you know, like I'm looking out for everyone else and I wasn't looking out for myself in that instance, um, which I should have been, um, yeah. you know, and something else you just said there that you were helping the other guys in that year. Like, so it's like your coaching self, like you've always been a coach, haven't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, racing bikes, I, I teach them from the back of the back of the race and be like, this is a Zen of bike racing 101. You can read the whole race from the back and I can tell you where to be at which time. And I can be there if I need to. Um, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is I had some guys that didn't like trust me and they'd go, I tell them, Hey, go get in the break. And they'd be like, do you think? And there was one guy who was a, went to Harvard. He was a world champion rowing and he would debate me. And by the time the debate's done, that he's the, the move is gone. And, I, and then he finally decides to go and he goes at the wrong time. He falls down in the gravel in the corner and the break wins. But he said, why won't you do it? Why are you going to ask me to do it? And you won't do it. I said, I said, Greg, I'm not strong enough to be in there. Mm. You know, you're strong enough to go to the finish with those guys. I was like, I could get there, but I'm not strong enough to go to the finish. So you should do it. And then, you know, it's like, he was like, well, I, I think in his head, he was like, well, this guy only went to Duke. I went to Harvard. Like I know what's right. You know, that's, <laughs> that's how I'm assuming the conversation went. Um, but he wasn't paying me for coaching either. So why was he going to listen to me? But yeah, I think it's, it taught me a lot of lessons. I've made my own podcast recently, like 
what I learned about business I learned in bicycle racing. I know I've been um, wanting to listen to that one. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would get a lot of that out of it because I think folks don't understand how much strategy there is to mm-hmm. cycling. Like you don't just go try to be the fastest cyclist. Like there is strategy involved in those races yeah. that has nothing to do with purely being the fastest. Right. It has a lot to do with energy conservation and reading the race and knowing, knowing when to make an effort, knowing when to sit back and, uh, Sometimes you just got to trust that things are going to work out, even if they won't. And you can't win all. I mean, the winningest cyclist is Eddie Merckx. And I think he only won like 40%, maybe 50% of his races. And he's like incredible. Um, and that's super high. It's kind of like baseball. These guys are really good at baseball or batting averages are like 20 to 30%. I know. Isn't you know? that crazy? Yeah. I know. I should have put that statistic in my failure. <laughs> So Aaron, um, I, I want to tell folks a little story mm-hmm. about how you helped me and my business. Um, so when I started out as a coach, I didn't know a lot about internet marketing, I, but I knew I was a good coach and I knew who I wanted to work with. And I was really struggling to get clients at one point and you knew it. And you said, Alicia, let's sit down and talk about this. And, um, you know, I, I was looking for so much guidance in all of the wrong places at that point. Um, I was looking, there were all of these older business gentlemen in Greensboro that I'd surrounded myself with. And I thought because they were successful businessmen within Greensboro that, that they would have something for me. And they looked at me like I had three heads when I was talking about what I was doing and, Here you were, and you knew exactly what I was trying to do better than I knew what I was trying to do yet. And you made the effort and you reached out to me and you sat me down and you told me exactly what to do. And it was all the right advice in a sea of not just wrong advice, but people who were like, I don't know, you're crazy. Like why, like this business model doesn't make any sense. Um, It does. If you know what you're doing. Right. And, you know, I think that folks think because I work predominantly with women that like, I must be a man basher or something. And I would not be here without your help and your guidance and the coaching that you gave me, the good advice that you gave me. And um, I, I just want to say it loud and clear on the podcast, how grateful I am for the work that you do in the world, because even though we weren't the same niche per se, you knew what I was trying to accomplish and you were able to really set me on the right track. And I am so grateful. And, and I just want everyone listening to hear that and hear how awesome Aaron is. Awesome. Thank you so much. Like that's a huge compliment. Um, I actually, I didn't come to you first. I said, Hey, Andra, I know she's struggling. Let her know that if she wants some help, I'd be happy to help her. And I think I'd had like three or four conversations with Andra about that before we sat down, but cause I didn't want to be like, here's some unsolicited advice. Like, you know, like I know better, but I think it, it landed at the right time and I'm glad it did. So. And yeah. it was exactly what I needed. And I, I am so grateful. And, you know, I I'm curious all right. So many people start a business and it's successful and they are like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to stick to this, this, mm-hmm. and you have not been afraid to keep going, to keep reinventing, to keep expanding and getting better and then becoming a coach. And 
how did that come about for you? And why was it important for you to, to go that route? That's a great question. You know, I, this is one that no one's asked me yet, <laughs> which is good, but there was a time at which I think in college somewhere I saw people would go get a job and they were like, well, I'm just going to be there for 30 years. And I think it was a temp. Um, I was on the 43rd floor of Embarcadero two in San Francisco. There are four buildings. I was on the 43rd floor and I was there, Aaron with a college degree. And then this other guy with a college degree and these like kids with out college degrees came in there on their summer intern. They got treated like gold mm. and they're all, and they were talking, you know, we were temps and they got treated. I, I got explained the alphabet too. They got treated like they were like the next best thing. It's because they were being recruited to work there. And their conversations were like, well, you know, when you have a cubicle at the window, you know, you've made it. Mm. And I was just like, you know, you've made it when you have a cubicle at the window. I'm like, I'm looking out the window, looking at the guys on, on riding bikes as bike messengers going, God, I wish I was doing that. Mm -hmm. it would, I mean, it was like the next month that I went and became a bike messenger, but it was it, that, you know, it was just this thought that I'm going to do this same People are going to do the same thing for the rest of their life. Like that's not very interesting. And I, I think I said to myself around that time, like if I'm doing the same thing in 10 years, I'm going to be disappointed with myself. And so I, I, I raced bikes and worked to whatever support that. And then I became a massage therapist. And six years later, I went back to PT school. And I graduated PT school and it was about 2000, that was in 2008, 2013, I started coaching people. So, you know, I don't know what the next thing is, but it's coming up pretty quick. But, uh, you know, it's, I mean, I've got some other opportunities in the works. They're not like full-time careers yet, but, you know, it's, I, I think I get bored with the same thing. Like once mm -hmm. I master something, I think it's like, okay, great. Now what's the next thing. Um, but I'm always, but it's not really that it's as much finding different ways and better ways to help pe help more people at the same at one time. So. Yeah. Yeah. So you shared something with me, <laughs> uh, that sometimes as an adult, you feel like you've been called into the principal's office. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me that story and what that means to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was, so I went to massage therapy school when I was probably, so how, let me see if I can get this right. I think I was probably 25 or 26. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I was definitely over 30 when I, when, when I was a, a category one. So like my timeline's fuzzy, I'm 48 now. So it's, it's been a while. Um, when I was, I finished racing bikes when I was, uh, probably 33 or 34. Okay. We moved back to Greensboro and, um, I go to PT school and I'm an adult. And I was, I think I was 34 years old when I went there and I graduated when I was 36. So I'm an adult. Like everyone else in the class was just graduating college. They were 22, 23. There was one other guy who had been in the army for 10 years, um, but he was still younger than me. He was like still 28. And there was one woman who was 55. She didn't really belong there. I think for a lot of reasons, she didn't graduate with us and I, not because of her age. I just don't think she was in the right program. Um, but so I was effectively the oldest person that graduated. Um, my first anatomy class, I asked my, you know, the, the two of the people who were working with me, we had, we had a cadaver lab. There were three other people. And I said, why are you here? They're like, I don't know. Like, it's just, you know, what else do you do with a sports science degree? I'm like a lot of things, <laughs> you know, and I'm sitting here going, these muscles are really cool. Cause I've been working on. Them. So what happened? I show up, uh, I should, let me see. Let me give a back. Let me give another background. Okay. Um, this is important. So at Duke University, um, I went to Duke. 
go Duke. Like I, I, I'm not a really a Carolina hater, but uh, you know, I'm a Duke fan. Um, I went to Duke University and we were one of the first universities that used mag stripes on our ID cards to open buildings. And that was in, I went there in 92 to 96. And so you'd swipe the card, the building opens, voila. Well, 12 years later, I'm at Elon and I show up to, uh, for an exam and the door that's been unlocked all year long is now locked. Why is it locked? Well, the undergrads are off campus. So I walk around the back of the building, that door is locked. I walk around the front of the building, that door is locked. And I'm like, what do I do? I walk around and try the fourth door, door is locked. So I finally walk back to the first door, the only one of four with a mag stripe reader and I swipe my card and holy cow, this thing works. I mean, for the first four weeks of school, I had been swiping it and it would never work. I'm like, so I, and it was always unlocked. I never had to use it, but it works. But I had totally forgot about that. I go in, I take my test. I'm 10 minutes late. When I'm done with my test, I get on the computer and I email the building maintenance and grounds crew and the administration. And just, I just CC everyone because this wasn't the first time undergraduates were gone and us grad students were forgotten about. You know, we would show up, I'd go, go get, I'd show up 30 minutes away from home and I, you know, cause I'd have a three minute drive and I'd go get lunch. Cafeteria is closed. I was never told I don't have lunch. Like, okay. You know, so it wasn't the first time. So I sent an email. It was a nice email. It was a very adult email, but what happened was the next day, the um, head of our department, head of physical therapy department called me in and she goes, Aaron, I need to see you right now. Junk. This is when I got called to the principal's office as an adult. And she goes, so yesterday, so I got an email from the president of the school that he heard from you that you were locked out of the building and you were really disappointed. And I was like, yeah, that's true. And she goes, I don't understand why you would send an email to the president and everyone on the administrative staff. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, their emails were public. And I came to get in this building and you and all the other professors were in the building. And clearly I wasn't the first, I wasn't the first person to get here. And everyone else said the doors were locked. And I figured if the doors are locked, you guys weren't able to unlock them. So I just emailed the maintenance staff and everyone else who I could think of might have the power to unlock the doors. And she takes her thing and slams her whatever <laughs> on her desk. And she's just like, fuming. you know, it's like in the cartoons when smoke's coming out their ears, yeah, yeah. Her eyes are getting big and red. Like, she's like, I just don't understand why you would email that. I mean, she must've gotten in trouble. Right. And I was like, well, you know, clearly you were in here and the doors were locked. So you guys didn't have the ability to unlock the doors. So why would I come to see you? Why would I even ask you about it? And she's, I'm also a former army PT. And she's like, that's not the chain of command. I'm like, I wasn't informed of the chain of command. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, I just don't understand why you would. And I was like, do I need to repeat myself? And she goes, no, you better get out of here before I do something irrational. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, but what everyone else, I mean, everyone else is just doing what they're told. And I'm thinking for myself going clearly my professors, the head of the school, the head of the department, they don't have the key to the door to unlock this, unlock any of the four doors in our building. Why would I go at, tell them that I was having a problem? Right. Right. Well, and that's what the entrepreneur's brain does, right? You're like, all right, how do I get to the root of this problem and mm -hmm. solve it? And mm -hmm. 
that's what you did and you get called yeah. to the principal's office. Yep. You know what, and, okay, what I love about that story is often in business, Aaron, when let's say I have a really good month or something really wonderful happens, I always feel like I did something wrong. Like, is this a normal thing? Do like most entrepreneurs feel this way? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, oh, that really great month. I just must have really fucked up. Like, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get called into the principal's office because I did something wrong when it, you're really doing it right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think because we're doing we're playing a different game as entrepreneurs. There's a different set of rules. Mm. And at this time, I had already owned my own massage practice. So, it, you know, I'd been a massage therapist for six years. I had owned a massage practice pretty much the whole time. Um, it wasn't my first rodeo with school or dealing with people. But yeah, so we're doing it wrong compared to what everyone else expects. And so when we base our um, wrongness, rightness, or like our path along what we were, we were taught through growing up, um, it is wrong but it's right for being an entrepreneur, yeah. you know, doing so you're right. So it's kind of like the, uh, that, that far side cartoon where it has the little kid with the books and, it, and he's pushing the door and it says Cloverdale school for the gifted pull to open. And he's pushing, you know, and I see my, my job as a coach is to say, Hey, look, I can see you're struggling with that door and the door's shut. I can help you find another door that's open, but most people aren't looking past, you know, they're not even looking at the sign on the door. They're like, the door's shut. It won't move. I'm going to quit. But really it's, we got to look up and see what's written on the door. And if it does say pulled, push to open and you're pushing, we just have to walk around the building until the door works. Until we find the right key card, right? Yeah, or the mag stripe finally works. Like seriously, I was like, holy cow, this is the first time it worked. And so what she does is she goes, she, she does this. And before she asked me to leave, she said, but I see here at, 9 13 a.m you swiped your mag car so the door was unlocked i'm just like i'm just like but it's never worked before i was like i gave it a, it was a last minute ditch effort to get in the building you know and she's like but you swiped i was like but it hasn't worked for all five years. months all year long and she just started and i was like clearly you guys have known about this because i've emailed you about this part too you know, and, and the reason I tell this story about being at Duke is like, we had, car, we were, we had cards and they just worked and this has never worked. So why would I, once it stopped, didn't work five times, why would I think it would ever work again? Yeah. And I think that, that people who are working in the system, right. They're in the system and they're in a chain of command. They only have so many options and they have no ability to, to go, to deviate off the path, to mm-hmm. do something better. They have to just keep going down the path, the way it was built. And as business owners and entrepreneurs, um, we have to get off that path and get on the other one. And as coaches, we have to help people see that the difference between the path that's well-worn and the path that's not, um, isn't very far. And there's not a lot of poison ivy in between. It's just, you can't tell. Yeah. I love that so much. I think that's the perfect way to explain it. I really appreciate that story on every level. Absolutely. Um, Aaron, you wrote your book how many years ago? I think it's been, yeah, I think it's been four, four years. It could be five, like a little bit of the pandemic has blurred some together, but I think it was 2018. Okay. Do you have more books in your future? I'm sure I do. You know, um, I think I have some more life experiences to get to, you know, get together. I mean, the book I wrote is about how to 
launch and scale a physical therapy cash practice. And is there another book I could write? Yeah. But I think the next book is going to be a book for the next thing I do, you know, I'm not sure what that is yet. So. Well, okay. I, I wanted to ask about your book for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I really want to talk about it as a strategy for attracting your target audience. Mm -hmm. And part of why I want to talk about this is because I know that writing a book is one of the very best things that someone can do to connect with their right target audience. And um, I recently mentioned, so I lead a mastermind right now. And I recently mentioned in my mastermind that um, we could give our book away for the cost of shipping or um, away in exchange for an email. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I actually pissed off another woman in the mastermind because she, it kind of blew her mind. I don't know that I pissed her off, but is this the mastermind that, that you run or I, the one that you're in? it's the one I run. And, okay. um, it just kind of blew her mind. The idea that we would spend all of this time writing a book and then give it away for mm -hmm. quote unquote free. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I'm wondering what you can talk about in that strategy because, uh, what you would say to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is your goal to sell books or is your goal to help people? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So for instance, I know if I put my book on Amazon and someone buys it off Amazon, I can make $4 a book. So was it, I have to sell to make a hundred thousand dollars a year off of that book. I have to sell 25,000 books a year. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of and books. You and I both know that the average number of books sold on when something is self-published, it's about a thousand. Mm -hmm. And if you are selling through a publisher, it's actually about 6,000. So we're not, um, that's not normal, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not. And I think a lot of people think like, okay, I'm going to spend all this time writing a book and I'm going to make profit on the book. But I think number one, they probably didn't find out that people want to buy the book first. Right. Um, and then two, it's just like selling a course. So like they spend $50,000 on a course and no one comes to buy it. Well, we didn't do the right like market research, which I hate using the word term market research, but that's really what it is. It's yeah. sales. We got to sell it first. Right. And then, um, but the thing is, is so I can make $4 on a book selling it on Amazon, but if I put it through my free plus shipping funnel, my average is anywhere from $20 per book when we run Facebook ads to it to $32 plus per book when I just market it to my own email list. So I'm getting $32 per book when I market to my own email list minus my costs of $12. So that's $20 profit. Or I could sell on Amazon for $4. What would you rather, 20 or four? 20, every 20. time. And the people that, that are getting it through the funnel are much more likely to become coaching clients of mine later on. So in the first three months after we launched the book, I went back and tabulated everything. And I was actually making, in that first three months, $60 per book that I sold. Hmm. I haven't gone back and done that tabulation, but pretty much everyone that came to PT BizCon recently where you spoke, had my book beforehand mm. um, and everyone who's been in my mastermind already had gotten my book. Even though when you join my mastermind, I send you a signed copy of the book. Most people already had a copy of the book and have read it before they come into our coaching program where they spend thousands of dollars 
yeah. tens of thousands of dollars to, yeah. to work with us. I mean, I'm getting chills. So not everyone listening to this podcast is an entrepreneur, but there's so many things that this applies to outside of just business. And I think it's a a great reminder that um, it it goes back to what you just said about the road of entrepreneurship. It's like the well-trodden path. There's a reason why it's well-trodden, but the, the one that's not is worn has a better view and there's a Mm -hmm. lot more interesting things that can happen on that other path. And, um, every time I talk to you, I get nuggets like that, um, that are so useful and I I don't know, writing a a book has been probably the most fun and the most beneficial thing that I've done for Mm -hmm. my business. And in mine's not even out yet. And so it's been, so I think everyone should write a book just for the, just for the experience of writing a book alone, Mm -hmm. because that's its own powerful journey. And then when you carry it to whatever it is that you're doing, it can just, I think, 10 X anything that you're trying, any message you're trying to get out into the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, um, a couple of things I want to share just for clarity, like people aren't paying $32 for the book. They're getting the book for free. They cover the shipping, which so for $9.99, my cost to print and ship the book to you is about $12.50. But I already had a digital download and a couple different courses that once you get the book, you can get a one-click upsell for the audiobook and ebook version. Mm-hmm. So the only place to get the audiobook is through my book, my book funnel. You can't get the audiobook on Audible or Amazon. And then after that, there's an opportunity to get um, a digital download and get into a course. And those are both things that the people buying the book need. It took me a while to perfect that. But like I said, I can run Facebook ads to it all day long if my niche was big enough. Um, And I can pay for leads. I'm basically getting free leads, uh, which people are paying. Oh, there's a word for that. What is that called? Um, Um, There's there's a couple of words. So like you can have a, you have, it's your loss leader, right? Maybe that's it, the loss leader. So the, I can lose money on the book, but I know that I'm getting a lead. Actually, we're not losing money on running ads to the book if we do it right. And we're getting basically free leads, which can turn into coaching clients. And so I think that if someone was going to go write a book, my, my top recommendation would be write a book that's helpful. It gives away your best stuff, but there's only so much you can put in a book, but make sure the book leads people to the next step, which is whatever your other program is or working with you in your coaching program. There should be stories and opportunities in there and even an opportunity at the end to get on a free strategy call like i have that in my book it's like hey would you like to join our program here's the link where you go um, yeah. if you're looking for this other program here's the other link it's self-published i'm going to put my own ads in the back um, but i also what more what's more powerful than that isn't the content of the book it's the email follow-up system that we created around it yeah yeah email marketing is so powerful yeah. it's so powerful And I I love it because I wish there was a different word besides email marketing. I want to call it something else because Mm -hmm. I feel like my email list are my best friends. Like they're the first people I want to tell when something really good is happening or, um, if some, even sometimes when something shitty happens, like Mm -hmm. they're like, I I feel like the people on my list are my friends. They're my buddies. Like I want them to come and take my courses so we can hang out together. Right. Right. It's kind of like, uh, client engage, you call it client engagement or something snazzy. But it really is, I think the, the, where people think marketing and sales get yucky is when we're being pushy rather than telling stories and asking questions. 
Yeah. Marketing is really about telling stories and sales is about asking questions. And if we can do those things and get people to connect with their why and what they want and see a path to their goals, then they're naturally reach out to us for help. Yeah. Aaron, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast. I've got a couple more questions for you. Mm -hmm. So first, what else would you like folks to know about you and the work you do in this world? Yeah, I think there's probably two, two big things that's come to mind. Number one, um, when your body hurts, you get injured. What you see on an x-ray or MRI isn't always the reason that you're hurt or injured. Um, so make sure you see a physical therapist first and get a total body diagnostic. I mean, it, I'm writing a proposal right now to, um, do some therapy at one of the big companies. And the whole idea is to insert ourselves between, um, people getting hurt working and getting an MRI because when they get the MRI, they end up getting shoulder surgery and they're out of work for a few months and, um, physical therapy, uh, is there. So physical therapy, isn't just, um, exercises and rehab from surgery. It actually helps you feel better and prevents problems mm -hmm. down the road. So if everyone understood that, like I'd be happy that <laughs> goal solved. Um, and not all physical therapy is the same. It's kind of like mm -hmm. going to a restaurant and saying, I, the food was bad. I don't like food. I'm never going to eat food again, or I'm never going to eat at a restaurant again. It's uh, physical therapy is very different. Um, and you can't fail physical therapy. You just may need another uh, different physical therapist, or you need a different, maybe you have a medical problem that needs a medical solution. Um, so that's, the life thing. The business thing is that, um, I think, uh, perfection is going to kill your business faster than anything else. And 80% is good enough, you know, to go through college and get into grad school, you got to have some A's, uh, but in business A's aren't where we're not measuring ourselves on the same yeah. scale and you just need to have it done. Uh, it's like MVP minimum viable product or 80%. I, that is like favorite saying that you have is 80% is good enough. And you was on your podcast, you gave me this handy dandy sticker <laughs> that's currently plastered on my notebook for those nice. that are watching on YouTube. And you also gave me this awesome, um, coffee mug that has it right there on it. And that's now my favorite travel mug because <laughs> I love that. I tell all of my clients that now 80% is good enough. And I, I believe that applies to so many things. I think we automatically take ourselves out of the running. So I, I mentioned when I came to speak at PT BizCon, there's a word for the chronic and pervasive fear of failure. It's called mm -hmm. a phobia and it's, um, it's perfectionism, right? That's the root of perfectionism and perfectionism keeps us out of action. Perfectionism is our ego's way of trying to keep us safe when what we should really be doing is just take action. Exactly. hundred percent. Thank you for, thank you for bringing that up. I should have asked you about that at the beginning. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And, um, my final question for you is how do you live a life of abundance? Oh yeah. I think it's, how do I live a life of abundance? I mean, I, th I think I don't intentionally do it anymore. I'm at this point where like someone asked me the other day, like, Hey, Aaron, there's another one of your coaching clients that also lives in my town. I was like, I've got two coaching clients that live in Greensboro, you know, <laughs> you know, one in Greensboro and one, like, you know, in like Summerfield, I was like, there's enough people here for all, all of us to help. There's enough to eat. And I think if, you know, it's not, um, it's not that we have like the world isn't limited. Mm -hmm. you know, it's limited to people that won't go and make ourselves. We can go make a new pie. 
there's not just one pie. And I think, I think that's part of it. And, and I think part of it, like I was sharing before, is like my whole goal was to help my teammates get better, you mm -hmm. know? And I think it's, I realized like that hurt me. And I, for a while I was like, I'm going to be selfish about this and do for me. <laughs> but I realized if I help other people, it helps me, Yeah. you know? And um, I think that's, I think that's, that's it, you know? No one has answered the question. And most of the time people don't answer this question the same, but you just answered it by saying, helping other people helps me. And that really is abundance. And nobody has ever said that before. And that might be my new favorite way that that has been answered. Oh, thank Aaron, you. <laughs> how can people find you? Um, I think the best way to connect with me is on Instagram. Go to at Aaron LeBauer. It's A-A-R-O-N-L-E-B as in boy, A-U-E-R. And if you're like, can't figure that out, just Google my name and Google will help you spell it. Um, and you'll find me that way too. And we will link to you in the show notes, but thank you so much for being on the show today. It is such a pleasure and an honor to get to talk to you. Alicia, thanks for having me. Like, this is great. This is one of the best interviews and a lot of fun. And thanks for speaking at my event and thanks for putting on an awesome podcast and having me as your guest. So I'm really honored to be here.